Listening to episode 52 of Sassmouth Dames podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. Years ago, when I was a new student in a master's program, I went to an icebreaker someone had thrown, the usual keg and red cups in the backyard affair. There was a man there. He made loud, self deprecating jokes at breakneck speed. Gurning, he chugged beers and cracked wise about how he had barely finished high school. He was maudlin, and he looked like he would rather chew his leg off than stay. His girlfriend was also newly enrolled in the program. I think she wrote poems. At first, I felt sorry for him. I remembered sitting at a full happy hour table full of new Ph.D. students when my husband, well, it was before we were married, started his doctoral program. They took turns asking me what department I was in. It was awkward, but I didn't lose my cool just because I wasn't part of the club. Back to that backyard in August, it was hot and strange, and classes hadn't started yet, so I moved away to the other side of the yard, the way you do when you anticipate that some guy's going to blow his top. Shortly after the semester began, a few weeks in, the woman who'd lived with him came into the office one morning. She was shattered. When she had gone home the night before, the place was empty, cleared out. It turned out he had run off with some other woman, a girl barely out of high school, He couldn't hack living with someone who was going to have two more degrees than him or something like that. They were just too different now. He took the futon they used as a couch and bed. He took everything from the kitchen, the bedding, the blankets, the CDs, the records, the lamps and end table. The bit that really got me, though, was that he even took the jar of loose change, the change jar. He thought to grab the jar you toss coins into when you clean out your pockets or purse. I'll never forget that degree of pettiness. It's like when the Grinch circles back for that one last Christmas bulb that rolled into the corner. The only stuff he left behind were her clothes, books, and makeup. Someone in the office started a collection to help her buy a few bits and pieces. Keep in mind it was a program in English at a mediocre school. Even if she made it through the two years of the program and graduated, it's not like it was a pipeline to wealth and influence. At best, we graduates were looking at work as short-term contract adjuncts or with a tiny salary as a sub-sub-editor or something. The road to riches is hardly paved with a master's in English. Let me tell you that one of my gigs with a master's in English was teaching an intro to lit course at a community college. At the end of the eight-week summer session, which I prepped on a week's notice, there were 20 students who wrote four papers each. I was paid the princely sum of $1,000 before taxes, and I didn't even get to keep the anthology that was assigned with the course. I get the whole cultural capital thing, but no one is ever really impressed that I've read a lot of books or that I have a Ph.D., The insecure boyfriend couldn't cope with the idea that there might be documented proof that the woman who shared his bed was smarter. Society made him believe that her accomplishments diminished him. I don't remember his name, but I think of that guy whenever I watch Ann Carver's Profession, starring Fay Ray from 1933, because times may have changed, but the fragile male ego somehow hasn't. 
Today, it's rare enough to find a man who's happy with a more successful woman. You see them occasionally, and I can't imagine the abuse they take from other men. I'm not sure why some men feel threatened or belittled when women do well or try to improve themselves. It seems small-minded, like the lad who grabbed the jar of pennies and dimes. Classic Hollywood biographies feature an endless supply of husbands who try to diminish the careers of their successful wives. Faye Ray's husband, John Monk Saunders, was one of the worst, and I'll get to him later in the episode. Even Irene Dunn, who had an otherwise loving husband, who usually gave good counsel, told her, as she sat down to write her memoirs, do you really think anyone's interested in stories about your grandmother? Irene Dunn scuppered her plan to write an autobiography after that one comment. I could spend the entire episode recounting examples of microaggressions from husbands, but I'll move on. Ann Carver's profession may have been made 86 years ago, yet it remains relevant in terms of professional women who are ambitious and care about their work. Our cultural norm is still that the husband should make more money and have a bigger, more important career than his wife. In Ann Carver's profession, a woman's work predominates the story and creates the inevitable tension from society's society's expectations that a woman sublimate her uncanny talent for making front-page headlines. It may come as no surprise that a story devoted to a woman with a prestigious career has her repudiated in the end. Even in the pre-code era, when things were pretty racy and up for grabs, the men behind the studios, the men in the MPPDA, the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America, which was founded in 1922, and the Production Code Office felt that paternalistic urge to reel in ladies who reached above their station. A conservative ending to this film, though, is easily forgotten. Is Ann Carver's return to the traditional role of wife what's important? Is it what leaves a lasting imprint with an audience? No, it isn't. It doesn't match the tone of the rest of the plot. It's a jarring, tacked-on moral stamp of approval, and it smells fishy. Am I going to remember a woman who pleads with a jury to forgive her for being a bad wife? Or am I going to remember her calling the shots? Women watching today or in 1933 would take supreme pleasure in what happens before the tacked-on ending. We don't suddenly say at the end, oh, let's not have any pleasures and the thrill of being really good at work. Let's just stay home and be thankful. Anne Carver has a way with words. She makes an impression. And during a crucial moment, she lets her actions speak louder than words. Faye Ray plays the title role. She earns her law degree working in a cafe that's frequented by university students who don't have to work for a living. Anne wasn't invited to vote for the most popular boy on campus contest because of her work-study situation. She's not too fussed about it, since the big man on campus, the popular football star, happens to be her boyfriend, Bill Graham, played by Gene Raymond. After they earn their their degrees, Anne settles down as a housewife, and Bill goes to work in an architecture firm. He says know-it-all comments like, This city looks like a bilious old dowager who needs her face lifted. And, as you can guess, he styles himself just the man to do the job. I'm going to surprise you by saying that I like Gene Raymond in this picture. He can't help that he usually plays a man who you you would want to shake with more force than a pitcher of margaritas. 
Unlike the regular heels he plays in, say, like Sadie McKee or The Woman in Red, here his character has more dimension. A friend offers Bill $200 a week to sing at a nightclub. Bill begs off, saying he didn't go to college for four years to sing for a bunch of drunks. He figures they just want to exploit his popularity as a football star. He's frustrated that he can't make an impression at the office. Three scenes in Ann Carver's profession are so well done that it makes the picture required viewing. Remember what Howard Hawk said. He declared that a good film had three good scenes and no bad scenes. We can apply his cinematic economy to director Edward Bazell's film. The first great scene is in the picture occurs when Bill takes Anne to a party. A judge there discusses a tough case in his legal firm. Immediately, Anne tells him where his strategy has failed. The men circle around Anne and lean in to hear her assessment. Their first mistake, she tells them, was having a woman on the jury, lots of women, because women are seldom in sympathy with each other. But they cried when she gave her testimony, one suit says to her. Anne gives them a clue to what they don't know, that women might be moved to tears and still go into deliberation and hold a woman responsible. It's refreshing here to see a woman who knows her onions. In the audience, we know that women are enculturated to be severe judge and jury with each other. It's ruthless, an old survival tactic. Women do it because they think it will keep them safe. It rarely does. After the judge listens closely to her advice, the judge quips that she should have been a lawyer. Jean Raymond just happens to enter the circle at this point and quips in return that she is a lawyer. Later, Bill tells Anne that he was so proud of her. Isn't life more interesting when you can exercise your wits? The men were so impressed with Anne that they hire her on as an attorney and give her a big case. The next big scene that's a standout occurs during the trial for a breach of promise case that Anne has taken over. It's the best scene in the film, really. I've discussed breach of promise cases before in episode 22 for We're in the Money with Joan Blondell and Glenda Farrell. Until the mid-1930s, the law had stipulated a form of protection for women. If a man had made promises of marriage as a means to coax a lady into having sex and then withdrew the proposal once he got what he wanted, she could sue for legal compensation. It's used as a plot point in scores of women's pictures. Anne's big courtroom scene plays around with social themes about rich men and women looking for a payday, but also something else, something frank, because it's a pre-code, the question of race. On the stand is a Miss Irma Chappelle, played by Diane Borey. Miss Chappelle has brought a breach of promise suit against a rich white boy, that the one that Anne Carver's firm represents. Miss Chappelle is of African-American descent, and again, the rich boy is white. Carver's firm wants to reject the suit based on Miss Chappelle's racial background, which he kept hidden from the rich boy. On one level, you could argue that Ann Carver is a lap cat to patriarchy for standing in the way of another dame who's merely exercising her right to exact a payday from a spoilt man. The boy clearly has the look like he uses women and then throws them right away. 
But on another level, Anne's performance in court resists the narratives that circulate about race and sex. Irma Chappelle's counsel, played by Robert Barrett, who we best know as Barbara Stanwyck's father, the pimp, and Mr. Powers in Babyface. Mr. Barrett here plays the opposing counsel, and he leads his case with an argument meant to appeal to a jury for its simplicity. Only a blithering idiot could look at Miss Chappelle and not identify her as colored. That's what he says. He objects to the notion that the rich white boy can claim not to have known as an excuse to withdraw his marriage proposal. The lawyer for Miss Chappelle asks her on the stand to uncover her shoulder so that the court and the jury can examine her skin. He asks her if the rest of her is as dark as that. Miss Chappelle casts her eyes down as she pulls her clothes aside to expose her shoulder. It's so invasive and coarse. The white people in the jury ogle her skin. And Carver then, when it's over, declines to question the witness. She asks for a break. When the court resumes after lunch, she calls the opposing counsel to the witness stand, not the woman with the lawsuit. He objects, as men do when they're blindsided. Anne asks, are you a blithering idiot, Mr. Simmons? Again, he objects. He splutters with rage. The effrontery. Anne requests if he could reaffirm his claim that anyone could look at a woman and tell if she's colored. Yes, he insists. That's right. He doesn't really see where she's going with this. Anne upstages his call from Miss Chappelle's shoulder. She brings six women into the courtroom. Three of them are white, she says, and three are colored. Six women file in front of the bench. They take off their coats to reveal swimsuits. She snaps at Mr. Simmons to tell her which women are colored and which are white. The attorney, Mr. Simmons, stands with his mouth agape, hemming and hawing. The judge bangs the gavel as the courtroom erupts. Ann Carver exposes the logical fallacy in the opposing counsel's argument. You can't tell by looking at a woman whether she's white or black. Ann Carver's legal mind disrupts the ability of Mr. Simmons to pledge that anyone can summarize a woman with a glance. Let's be clear that what they're talking about is passing and all the anxiety that occasions in a society founded on racial hierarchy. Nella Larson's groundbreaking novel, Passing, was released in 1929, just a few years before the film's release. White men turn apoplectic at the possibility that they might have been fooled by a woman, not to mention a woman of color or whether she's a virgin. Most likely, audiences were riveted by the suggestion that appearances are performative and ambiguous. You can't determine who a woman is by looking at her any more than you can tell a book by its cover. Unfortunately, it's derailed Miss Chappelle's lawsuit, but Anne's exhibition in the courtroom has disrupted a man's ability to claim expert status to define a woman and be the arbiter of her worth. That's pretty radical stuff from a Columbia programmer. The law firm then hires Anne based on her success, gives her an office with her name on the door. She's so excited, she says she's going to buy loads and loads of new clothes. 
As a montage charts Anne's success winning cases, lodging precedents in the legal court of records, things turn sour at home. Bill has to endure boring dinners where legal matters are discussed, poor thing. Later, during a rare quiet night in, Anne pours the after-dinner coffee and invites Jean Raymond to select their entertainment for the evening. She offers him sugar. Bill's reaction is pure shock. He admonishes her, you know I never take sugar. This is Anne's almighty failure in the wife department. Boring your husband with work is bad enough, but then she has forgotten how he takes his coffee. Good wives memorize every nuance of preference her husband has. It made me think of Evelyn Key's memoir, Scarlett O'Hara's Younger Sister, when she narrates one of the many rows she had with Artie Shaw because she didn't remember to butter his toast to the edges or adhere to some other fanatical demand he had about keeping the refrigerator fully stocked. My third favorite scene is silent. It packs a wallop. Bill takes the job singing in a nightclub to alleviate his shame about a low salary compared to his wife's. Backstage before a performance, he receives kisses from Claire Dodd, another singer in the club, and sees them. Can I just say that Claire Dodd is such an underrated sass mouth dame. I love her performances as a man-eater. She's divine. Again, back to Anne, she sees her husband share an intimate moment with another woman. Sat at the bottom of a large table in the club, the waiter returns with their change from the bill. Then her husband takes his place on stage and begins crooning. Anne claps her eyes on the change, scoops it up, and flings it at Jean Raymond as she makes her exit. There goes that loose change again, from one cheap man to another. What a perfect way to call him cheap and petty. It's the most hi-hat response to a cheating husband I've ever seen on film. Forget recriminations, tears, or any words at all. He's chump change. Fay Ray is best known today for having survived a massive beast, an ape, King Kong, who hauled her to the top of the Empire State Building. He was a beast of the jungle, persecuted by imperialists and capitalists, but the giant simian was more solicitous and caring than her own real-life husband, screenwriter John Monk Saunders. They were married from 1928 to 1939. He won the Best Story Oscar for Dawn Patrol in 1930, but he was the real beast in Feyre's life. When I read Feyre's memoir, the question became, what will it take for her to leave him? She was won over by his good looks and his impeccable dress sense, and she married him when she was only 19 years old. At the time, he continued his affair with Bessie Lasky, Jesse Lasky's wife, after their marriage. He regularly needed medical intervention after one of his many benders. When she told John she was pregnant, he replied, what does that have to do with me? At a party, he unbuttoned the blouse of Frank Morgan's wife to admire the lace on the bra she was wearing to hold up her ample bosom. At another party, he hit on Gloria Swanson in front of her lover, Herbert Marshall, and then clobbered Herbert Marshall when he objected. 
Need I mention that Bart Marshall lost a leg in the First World War? Would she leave him, I thought, when she came home from the studio early one day and found him in bed with another woman? The love notes she found from other women. How about the time he came upon her suddenly and without warning injected her with drugs? From the fuzzy feeling she described having, I'm guessing it was morphine. Surely she would hit the roof and file for divorce when she found out that he secretly, behind her back, sold their house and its entire contents to auction, all of her possessions gone. He sold her home and her worldly goods to pay for his drug and gambling debts. Bob Riskin wrote the screenplay for Ann Carver's Profession, which was based on a story called Rules for Wives. Riskin was one of the screenwriters in the classic era who adhered to the less is more philosophy. He didn't glut a picture with too much dialogue. His scripts were never overwritten. Bob Riskin knew when to show and when to tell. Take one scene that's only a few seconds long that shows Anne's degree, Bill's degree, and then their marriage license. It's a few seconds of visual exposition instead of the yakety yak. Or take the stunning scene where Claire Dodd's character, Carol Rogers, dies. I won't tell you how it happens. It's a quiet scene that makes me gasp every time I watch. And the scene where Anne hurls the handful of change at Bill is more scathing than anything she could have yelled at him. I like to think of the romantic coincidence here of Faye and Bob working together on this picture since they later married in 1942. Faye must have had this great sense that she was on another planet with a different species altogether when she compared John and Bob after wasting so many years on John Monk Sanders. It took Faye time to learn that maybe the flashy demonstrative men like John Monk Saunders or Clifford Odets were not ideal partners. Bob Riskin's exes tell you all you need to know about him. Carol Lombard and Glenda Farrell both had long-term relationships with him, which earns him the sass-mouth dame seal of approval. Bob wasn't threatened by successful women. In her memoir, one of the dearest memories that Faye held on to from their years together was when Bob wrote to her that she should write something important one day, and he encouraged her to do it. When they were just dating and he learned how hard she struggled financially after being ruined by John Monk Saunders, he wrote a letter saying he hated to think of her scraping by and denying herself things while she was trying so hard to support her daughter, Susan. He sent a big fat check to ease her worries. Bob Riskin lived by a code. He believed in honor and decency. He was generous and kind. When Bob died unexpectedly in 1955, a few years after a massive stroke, Faye Ray carried on, and 20 years after he died, she married one of the physicians who had attended him. It was Dr. Sandy Rothenberg. One day, Harry Cohen called Faye Ray into his office to make sure that she was getting the lead role in the picture and knew it was a big deal for her to have the character in the title. In true Harry Cohn fashion, the meeting swiftly turned to how it stood in the larger context for aggrandizing him on the world stage. 
He bragged that he was traveling to Italy, would meet with Benito Mussolini, and that very big things were in store for him on an international level. As if somehow presiding over one of the leading studios in Hollywood lacked prestige. Columbia Pictures remade Ann Carver's profession in 1938, retitling it The Lady Objects. You can find it on YouTube. It stars Gloria Stewart and Larry Ross. It was directed by Earl Kenton. It isn't half as good as the original, though. I'll close the episode with a brief passage from Feyre's memoir, On the Other Hand, which was published in 1989. I would go on trying to understand about Bessie. I would go on trying to understand why he would say that if I should ever find him in bed with another woman, I should think nothing of it because he was oversexed. Why he wanted me to pattern my voice after Tallulah Bankhead's. Why he wanted me to try and develop my breasts to compare with Lily Demita's, who were very large. Why he wanted me to get my skin to have the texture and tone of Dolores Del Rio's. There were times I thought he loved me as I was. Making love, he thought, was essential to him and a danger. Drinking was essential to him and a danger. Make you laugh and play. This, with the first sip of a first martini, was his way of toasting the anticipated pleasure. He thought of himself as part of the lost generation. He admired the membership. Scott and Zelda Fitzgerald had visited him in his house in Hollywood Hills. Standing on a balcony, the three had competed to see who could urinate farther. Yes, Zelda too. He liked remembering. In Ernest Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises, there was a matador who made the mistake of engaging in love the night before going into the bull ring. The following afternoon, he was slain by the bull. Shower down thy love, O burning bright, for tonight or yet another night will come the gardener dressed in white and gathered flowers are dead, Yasmin. These lines are not Hemingway's, and I never learned whose, but John had to quote them only once to make them memorable. In the spring of 1929, he went to Paris, found a girl at the Ritz, and went to live with her at the Hotel Claridge, went to Portugal, the Hemingway characters had gone from Paris to Spain, and by the time he returned home, with perfumes and a Spanish shawl for me, he was ready to begin writing The Single Lady. He wrote early in the morning. It was fine to see him at his desk, menus and bottle labels collected from his trip posted on the wall behind him. He didn't drink during the writing of that novel. A cable came from Paris saying, a sticky cablegram came from Fay. Well, letters followed. After he had read them and left them on his desk, I read them when he went off to play golf. She had missed him so much and had drunk so much that she had to be taken to the American hospital. She had spent a night in a tree in her leopard skin coat. She signed her name Nikki. Again, I was not jealous in the sexual sense, but wildly curious about her as a person. I asked. She had been born in Hawaii, he said, had inherited $40,000, and had gone immediately to Paris to the Ritz bar. He said she was chic. He had a large photo of her taken by him inscribed to her, to Nikki, I can walk faster in red shoes. He was quoting her. 
I could understand his appreciating that line, and perhaps a lot about her, but when she wrote that a wired-haired terrier that she kept was like our child, it seemed a strangeness. She bought two wire-haired terriers and named them Michael and Mary. She had kept turtles. He bought turtles for me. He cabled her for the source of from ghosts and ghoulies and long-legged beasties and things that go bump in the night, dear Lord, protect us. She cabled back that it was from an old Cornish litany. He had brought back from Paris and given to me heart-shaped stones that he, or they, had found at the tomb of Heloise and Abelard. For a long time, I thought they were for me only. That when given, they meant no harm would come to our true love. I kept them carefully, believing he really wanted it to be that way for us. But Nicky became a kind of ghosty or ghouly to me. The character in his novel was some of her, some of me, all mixed up. I was very mixed up about what marriage was supposed to be. I was very easy to accept his instructions about what my behavior should be. Never let a man into your dressing room. I know, I've been in dressing rooms. I never felt a flutter of personal interest or excitement about working with Richard Arlen or Clive Brook or Gary Cooper. He didn't have to set rules for me. When he finished Single Lady, the flyleaf said for Fay, he dated the book's ending, Lisbon, Portugal, June 15, 1929, the date of our first anniversary. When he returned home sometime after that and I met him at the train, he reproached me for wearing the same dress in which I had said goodbye to him. I should have worn something new, he said. The preoccupation with clothes was part of a manners maketh the man point of view. The next Christmas was a disastrous one because of a camel's hair coat I had bought for him. He put it on and went into the guest's bath to have a look in the mirror. He called out, the sleeves are too long. He took it off and went out and didn't come back. I sat by the Christmas tree for a while and then decided that I too must drink. I put the scotch he had been drinking in a tumbler and drank until my head began to spin, until I felt I could write an apology for all that I had done wrong. In Single Lady, when Nikki was asked as she left for the powder room where she was going, she answered to take a Chinese singing lesson. I quoted that in my note of apology. I said that I would try to do better, that I would take a Chinese singing lesson every single day. When he read the note the next morning, he was delighted. In the last scenes of Single Lady, he had Nikki say, Haven't I been pretty good? Haven't I done better? He liked the pleading tone for approval. Did he think that by writing that note I had done better? Or did he think that by drinking I had done better? And when he wrote those words, did he write them as coming from me or from the Nikki of Paris? He had done something better himself than that Christmas Eve. He had not gone to the beach. He had gone to the Lewis Milestones. He found a large gathering and music and Christmas carols and had had a good time and something to drink. Thanks very much for joining me. Come back next time for episode 53 when I look at Teresa Harris in The Flame of New Orleans from 1941. Thanks very much.